Sorry about that. Um, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us on our second day of Faces of Africa. Um, in a short minute, I will uh, turn the mic over virtually to Chineza and she will introduce our, our speakers um, and our theme for today. Um, so thank you once again and over to Chineza. Okay, thank you, Asoma. Um, okay, so today we have, we're going to have two sessions today. The first session would be on the sexual violence and abuse in within humanitarian um, settings in Nigeria. And our speaker for um, this session is going to be Ms. Oluwashim Ayodeji Oshawabi. And she's a, an award-winning gender equality advocate in Nigeria. And she is currently the executive director of the Stand to End Rape Initiative, which is a youth-led organization engaging in raising awareness on gender-based violence, policy advocacy, providing psychosocial support to survivors of sexual violence, while working with communities to change negative perceptions towards sexual and reproductive health and rights issues and sexual violence. So um, without further ado, um, Ms. Oshawabi, you can your presentation. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the introduction and good afternoon and good morning, everyone. I'm excited to be here. Um, thanks for inviting me. I was just share my screen um, really quick. Can you confirm that you can see my screen? Yes, we can. Fantastic. Um, like Shinaza said, my name is Oluwashi Ayodeji Oshawabi. I am the founder and executive director of Stand to End Rape Initiative STAIR, which is a youth-led organization in Nigeria, working around um, sexual violence prevention and response, especially on policy advocacy um, and um, awareness. I'm here to talk about sexual violence and abuse within humanitarian settings um, in Nigeria. And just to set a bit of context, um, I'm going to talk about what sexual violence means in our own um, Crime. So the global part of it is um, non-legal term used to refer to any crime like sexual assault, rape, or sexual abuse. Um, but within the Nigerian space, it is any conduct that violates, humiliates, or degrades the sexuality, sexual integrity of any person, which is um, the definition captured within the Violence Against Persons Prohibition Act, which is like a national law that is applicable in about 28 states and prohibit sexual violence, whether in a private setting or in a public setting. Within the humanitarian setting, um, sexual violence has become a growing concern. Um, it's a war crime. Um, and unfortunately, women and girls and children um, are always at the receiving end of this grave violation of human rights. And this violence is not only perpetrated by bandits um, or terrorists, like you know, we quote, sometimes people that we entrust to keep us safe are also violators. And I mean people within the law enforcement agencies or humanitarian setting who are sent to you know, either IDP camps or places of war, um, whether internal crime or um, clashes. Um, but any setting that has, you know, um, a humanitarian com component, there are people who are sent there to sort of keep 
you know, keep peace and, and keep restore, um, you know, peace in those environments. They are also have, they also have been found to be abusers themselves. Um, and we also saw like a very high increase of that during COVID-19 um, where, you know, people within the camps, you know, sort of faced um, different forms of violation, but I'll get to that um, in, in a bit. Just to give a bit of data to help you understand how big of an issue it is in Nigeria. Um, from a finding an assessment in Yobe states um, of an IDP, IDP camp, and I will say IDP camp a, a lot, which means internally displaced persons camp. Um, and Yobe is in the Northeast part of Nigeria. An assessment actually showed that um, sexual violence occurs mostly um, you know, within the home while traveling outside of the camp. And when we say home, it is the camp is their home because they've been displaced. So 40% of, of, the, of the rape or sexual violence happens within the camps. Uh, for some of them while traveling outside of the camp or the community for wood collection, that's 21%. Um, for those who are going to school, 15% of them experience that violence. Um, and even doing distribution of humanitarian assistance, 10 percent experience sexual violence um, in, in the IDP camp in Yobe State. In a survey of about 145 IDPs who you know, uh, mentioned or responded to having experienced sexual violence um, since the, their displacement um, by Boko Haram, um, about 51.5 percent said that you know, they knew the perpetrators of their sexual violence. Um, 27.3, which is 34 persons, said they did not know who he was. 17.8% um, of these perpetrators were members of the police and armed forces, while 19 of them, which accounts for 15.4%, were intimate partners. Seven um, persons, which is 5.8% of the number, were relatives of people within the IDP camps. Similarly, ICRC in 2018 reported that 21 staff members left their jobs following an internal review of numerous allegations of sexual misconduct and exploitation by their workers in IDP camps. Now, what is the intersectionality um, of humanitarian um, situations in Nigeria and sexual violence? Um, the first is, you know, banditry. We have people who um, are bandits who employ sexual violence, specifically rape as a weapon of war, where women and children and girls have been raped by these um, um, bandits and, and um, you know, insurgents or, or terrorists as applicable. And I'm sure most of us heard of the story around um, Bring Back Our Girls, where a number of girls have been taken from school, um, taken into the bush, could not be found, um, but there were videos surfacing on, on, on social media where um, the, the um, terrorists were making, you know, requests. And one of the case cases that stood out the most is of Leah um, Shaibu, who is a Christian and refused to denounce a religion. Uh, by the time some of the girls were, you know, it, um, were rescued or were released in an exchange, um, we noticed that most of them came back with children. And these are children themselves, underage girls who, you know, um, had experienced one form of sexual violence um, or the other. Another case, case point I'd like to highlight is that of sextortion, which I, I referenced earlier. There's been numerous cases um, of um, police forces, um, 
um, the emergency agency in Nigeria, personnel of the emergency agency, and a couple of you know other people who have been highlighted to um, request sex in exchange for materials like pads, like food, like mats, or whatever it is that people at the ID camp needs. There's an exchange, more like we know sex for grades, but now it's sex for survival because these people are already at you know a very low point in their lives and you know should be supported. But unfortunately, what we see is, you know, um, personnel of these agencies who are supposed to support and shield, you know, uh, members of the IDP camp, um, they themselves have become abusers um, who request who request sex um, in exchange for um, for food. Can you still see my screen? Yes, we can. Okay. All right. Um, I also want to mention that um, there's also the issue of, um, so just to give you an, um, like an estimate, we have about 2.7 million people displaced in, in Northern, Northeast Nigeria um, as of 2020. And this is you know, due to um, conflicts or you know, banditry and you know, different cases. And although some of them have migrated to Abuja, we have a lot of IDP camps in Abuja, um, but there's you know, um, a couple of IDP camps still in, in Northern part of Nigeria. Um, there is also the issue of, um, you know, police brutality. So for those who refuse sex um, in exchange for materials, they are beaten, they are injured, and some of them, um, it, leads, it leads to death, which is quite, you know, alarming because these are people who are um, sort of sent to these places to entrust, sorry, who are, who are sent there to protect the lives and property um, of those um, people in the IDP camps. But unfortunately, most of them um, tend to abuse their power and um, sort of violate the rights of, of IDP camp members. And there's also the issue of poverty, right? Um, because majority of the women and girls in, in the IDP camps, most of them have to rely on the aids that they receive. Um, there are organizations that have been very kind enough to provide sort of um, empowerment trainings to them and provide them with items. But it's, it's, it still cannot be compared to the, the level of um, economical degradation that they experience, right? Um, because their, their um, ordinary uh, source of livelihood has been disrupted. So some of them are compelled you know, to actually engage in transactional sex um, in exchange for survival, for money, um, for favors, and things like that, which is a you know a human rights violation in itself, right? Um, of course, we recognize that people are able to engage in sex work as a profession, but there is a context to this case because these people are already displaced from their homes, so they are experiencing you know poor economic conditions and you know greater hardships, um, and you know they are sort of compelled you know to engage in in, in that practice. Okay, um, just to give you context about the groups of people who experience this within the um, humanitarian settings, major, majority of the people who experience violence are women and, and adolescent girls. Um, there are also children who had, you know, had increased, um, who face increased risk of exposure to violence. And what we, we mean by this, although it is not sexual violence in, in, in all its ramification, but also the, the danger 
of putting guns in the hands of children who themselves then become abusers and, and perpetrators of violence against other children and other people um, within the IDP camps. We also have you know, um, a key group that we most times not talk about, which are people who live with disabilities. They're also in the IDP camps, uh, but most of the interventions you know, do not target them in terms of you know, how can they easily make reports, how can they access services, um, how can you know um, they be economically empowered and things like that? So, what are the implications of sexual violence on vulnerable groups? We have different consequences, um, but I want to highlight um, these four consequences: um, physical consequence, which includes injuries, um, unwanted pregnancies, which leads to unsafe abortion, um, VVF, sexually transmitted infections. Um, I highlighted the case of Leah Sharibu here because unfortunately she was um, forced to carry two unwanted pregnancies as a child. There's also the social consequence of you know, social stigmatization, um, self-blame, low self-esteem, not just peculiar to survivors or victims, but also their family members um, who, are, who are at the IDP camps and have you know, seen their children be, um, being violated. There's also the issue of mental and emotional consequence. And this is one of the key um, consequences that we so, sometimes undermine, right? Because we most times focus on the things that we can see, like the, the, the unwanted pregnancy, the VVF and other things, but we don't really pay attention to the mental aspect of it where, um, you know, victims or survivors are experiencing anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, flashbacks, and some are actually at risk um, of you know, committing suicide because of their experiences. And sometimes, of course, um, this leads to death. So at STAIR, we try to provide direct services to survivors and their families. And this ranges from mental health services, legal representation, um, and referral services in areas that we cannot cover. So what would be my recommendation in terms of addressing um, sexual violence within the spaces? I wanna focus on um, five critical things. The first is protocols. The second is resource provision. The third is community awareness. And the fourth is capacity building. And all of these things um, are intersectoral collaboration. And I'll explain why. When it comes to protocols, um, I use Africa as, as a very broad term. Um, because we have IDP camps in, in different parts of Africa. I have people from Nigeria who are migrating to other camps outside of, outside of um, Nigeria for survival. Uh, but it's important that you know, we have standard protocols that include um, guidance on medical um, services, psychosocial services, and you know, ethical aspects on collection and preservation of forensics, um, as well as counseling and psychosocial support um, options for survivors. Um, recently, we got in contact with our Ministry of Health and Na National Primary Health Care Development Agency because we did realize that there was no national protocol on how to address uh, you know, the clinical management of sexual violence in Nigeria, whether in humanitarian settings or outside of humanitarian settings. So we're currently um, developing that protocol in partnership with the Ministry of Health, and this will be adopted as a national um, um, tool that you know, service providers, even um, emergency agencies can actually apply. Um, it's also very important to develop protocols um, that sort of guides um, the attitudes um, of providers, the sensitivities, the social cultural context, 
community perspectives, practices and beliefs, and also ethics. Um, because you know there are times when people volunteer. Um, I, you know, I used to be a part of a group that volunteers to support people at the IDP camps, right? I did that from the good, from a very good intention. But there are people. Sorry, there seems to be like a job going on um, around my house. Sorry about that. Um, but there seems there seems to be like a culture of people who go into the IDP camps in the in the under the guise of supporting women and girls in that in that setting. But unfortunately, there's no ethical practice or standard that guides their behaviors, their attitudes, what to do and what not to do. Um, of course, we understand that sexual violence is a crime, whether in um, a humanitarian setting or outside of it. Um, but a number of people do not understand what the law is and do not understand what ethics is. So it's important that there is like a, uh, a guideline that helps the emergency agency of Nigeria when anyone is accessing the IDB camp, whether um, individuals, whether groups, coalitions, international bodies, they are bound by these principles and practices to ensure that we're protecting the rights and dignities um, of women and girls within these camps. In terms of capacity building, um, we did realize that when war happens, there is a total um, collapse of response services, whether medical services, um, primary health care um, services, uh, you know, the, the ministries of justice, of course they function, but sometimes the courts are not able to sit because of their, um, uh, their um, political unrest or um, civil unrest, you know, happening within, within this, the setting. So it's important that when um, medical spaces are established within those IDP camps, they, they actually are trained on um, clinical management of sexual violence, because most of the healthcare workers there are just there to manage polio, manage uh, malaria, manage um, you know, the, the other public health issues that we prioritize, but we do not prioritize sexual violence as a public health issue. Um, so there, there are you know, cases where um, forensic evidence cannot be collected, for instance, there isn't documentation um, of, of the experience, um, you know, the, the medical practitioners are unable to collect samples as evidence, you know, to use in the court of law, whether during that, within that jurisdiction or outside that jurisdiction. Um, there's also the importance of responding to survivors with professionalism and empathy. Um, because these are people who are already extremely vulnerable. And when providing support to them, there has to be a high level of professionalism and empathy. Um, there should also be considerations for children, um, aged people, um, and people with special needs. What we realized is when we're talking about response of sexual violence within um, humanitarian settings, we over time, we've overlooked you know, people who are within the age of 50, 60, 70, there's an assumption you know, that you know, either they can't be raped or when they are raped, you know, they'll be fine. But that's a very, very terrible and um, costly assumption to make. So it's important that there are considerations in our service provision to people um, with special needs. Um, there's also the importance of prescribing treatments to prevent STI, and this means providing post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, the couple of IDP camps and um, medical facilities there, they don't have that. So when a rape happens, for instance, or sexual violence or sexual abuse happens, um, they are unable to you know, provide the services um, to survivors. Um, there's also the need to provide mental health services, um, counseling, um, and also creating like a survival-friendly environment. So from our own organization, for instance, we've been able to train about 400 primary health care um, providers as first responders 
of sexual violence and taking into account the vulnerabilities of those already in IDP camps. So in terms of provision of resources, um, generally there should be availability of personnel, drugs, administrative supplies and other resources such as um, laboratories for DNA analysis um, because there are times where survivors can actually identify the abuser um, before, because of lack of evidence, um, we're unable to actually take legal measures against these people. And there's also need to have um, rape management equipment for documentation and collecting forensic evidence. Um, there's also a need to have a national SCI treatment protocol, which is something we don't have. And we're currently, you know, um, integrating into our own protocol um, to ensure that, you know, when it comes to um, violence within IDP camps, we have certain guidelines for treating um, and preventing cases of STI and you know, HIV. Um, and this includes providing post-exposure prophylaxis, like I mentioned, and also vaccinations um, um, as, as um, scheduled and emergency contraceptions. There's also importance of providing um, resources such as you know, pads, um, you know, clothing materials, regular food. Um, there was a time in Nigeria where we saw in, in markets um, foods that were supposed to be provided to people in the, within the IDP camps. It was being sold at the market. And what happens is um, people within the IDP, camp, IDP camps rather, are forced to beg for food on the streets, um, sometimes um, are forced to engage in transactional sex just to survive. Um, and, you know, other times, you know, sort of have to struggle amongst themselves, you know, to, to manage the resources that they have at the camps. Oh, my apologies. Sorry. There's also a need to um, improve awareness um, of um, access and um, sort of limit the, the barriers to accessing services. Um, at the community level, um, because IDP camps have now become communities of their own. Um, and there is this um, sort of unwritten rule where when a case happens, there's, there's like a societal norm to you know, keep it quiet because they already feel like they're extremely vulnerable. No one will believe them and they don't need to seek care. They can take care of themselves. Um, so it's important that um, there's intensified community engagement to help people understand availability of services where those services are located, how to get there, um, the benefits of you know, seeking you know, care and also addressing societal norms that drive sexual violence and limits you know, its disclosure. Um, because I must mention as well that there are times where you know, um, people in the IDP camps um, you know, themselves perpetrate violence against one another. And so it's important that we're able to address those societal norms where um, you have to be violent to take things from your from your other um, IDP you know, camper, um, or you have to exert a, a number of power or an excessive force you know, to access things. So we are actually intensifying awareness campaigns in that regard, but that should not just be the responsibility of civil societies. It should also be the responsibility of government um, um, through the social welfare um, um, commission that we have in Nigeria. So in terms of intersectoral collaboration, um, this should be established to sort of um, prioritize prevention of violence, but also um, ensuring availability of comprehensive care for those who experience violence. And this includes including representatives of communities, um, um, law enforcement agencies, healthcare systems, social agencies, um, legal justice systems, faith-based organizations, um, civil society-based organizations as a coalition. Um, you know, to respond 
urgently and promptly respond to you know, um, cases of sexual violence and also sort of develop those protocols I earlier mentioned. And this will also help with establishing a referral network and pathway as well as communication systems where um, we're able to flag um, issues of sexual violence very quickly within, this, within the um, um, IDP camps or humanitarian settings. And we can um, easily coordinate uh, mechanisms to, to prevent recurrence and um, ensure like follow-up strategies are in place for those who have experienced sort of um, those sort of violence. It's also important um, to collaborate to address the root causes of humanitarian crisis in, in the first instance. I know this is sometimes outside of our control, but when there are clashes between two tribes, for instance, um, or a national group and um, government, it's important that you know bodies are able to step in quickly. I'm sure most of you are aware of the IPOP crisis we have in Nigeria. Um, in some states, for instance, um, there is a sit at home rule, and those who you know violate those rules are either raped or killed or maimed or whatever the case may, you know uh, may be. Um, but human rights abuses, you know, um, you know, takes place. Um, for, you know in that setting. And it's important that we don't let those kind of, you know, small, I don't want to say small um, um, crisis because they, they tend to escalate. Um, but it's important that we're able to address or step into those issues and address the root causes as quickly as possible. Um, in closing, I would say that we're making progress in Africa, especially in Nigeria, to sort of adopt a multi-sectoral approach. Um, that involves different stakeholders, but there's so much more that can be done in terms of implementation and having standardized protocols. We currently don't have that. There's also uh, a challenge uh, of strong political commitment and limited resources to help people within the humanitarian settings to reintegrate. For instance, in Borno states, um, the IDP camps are being closed and there is um, conversation around you know, um, helping them to reintegrate. But in practice, that is not what is happening. And a lot of violence is still ongoing in those camps that, you know, government is not really um, paying attention to. Um, the way we've also paid attention to COVID as a humanitarian, not necessarily as um, a public health issue that requires an emergency response, we should also prioritize sexual violence as such, um, that we would establish, you know, prevention mechanisms, but also, um, scale up the response um, um, strategies that we currently have in Nigeria. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mr. Shobi. This is such an enlightening presentation. I was very, I think I was, um, I learned a lot because I wasn't aware we had um, about the IDP camps in Nigeria. So this was very eye-opening for me on that front. Um, I would just like to ask um, if anybody has any questions, you can just unmute and ask your questions or you can raise up your hands and we'll just call you. We're gonna ask your questions. If you have any questions for the speaker. Or if you have any comments as well, it doesn't have to be a question. It can just be a comment. Um, but I'd like to start with that. I, I wanted to ask if, um, like, 
I know you mentioned um, the laws in Nigeria at the moment. What are the basic laws, like sexual violence laws, um, laws against sexual violence in Nigeria? Because I don't think I know any of those laws right now. Yeah, so we have the Violence Against Persons Prohibition Act, we have the Child Rights Act, and the Child Rights Act, for instance, is all-encompassing because it also talks about child marriage, um, which sometimes happens within the IDP camps as well. Um, sorry, I didn't highlight that. Um, but there's a lot of child marriage and, you know, um, teenage pregnancy and unwanted pregnancy happening there. So the policy is supposed to address that, not just at the IDP camps or humanitarian settings, but in Nigeria in general. Unfortunately, most northern states are yet to adopt it because of the, there's a pushback that um, their religion permits girls of certain age to get married. So there's a bit of pushback around the Child Rights um, Act, but it's consistent advocacy ongoing to get that um, adopted. Um, the Violence Against Persons Prohibition um, Act um, was passed in 2015, and is meant to be a national policy that speaks against sexual violence in public and private settings. And this comprises um, sexual violence in humanitarian settings, sexual abuse, um, violence against children, um, uh, spousal battery, emotional abuse, acid violence, and a couple of other violence that you know um, exist in Nigeria. So those are the two national laws that we, we make reference to. Of course, there is a penal code and a criminal code which the, um, the southern and northern um, region um, apply respectively. But we're trying to phase out those, those laws because they don't recognize that boys, for instance, can be raped. Um, so the Violence Against Persons Prohibition Act is you know, um, the new policy we're adopting and we're applying to protect the rights of all persons. Okay, thank you so much for that. Um... Um, Sandra, can you, um, you can unmute yourself and ask your question or give your comment. Um, thank you so much. Um, this was, um, as Chinese said, was very eye-opening and very enlightening. I think um, the more we hear about sexual violence, specifically in humanitarian settings, um, we just keep learning new information every day. Um, and it's very appalling. Um, I think I just, um, I would like to hear your comments on I know when we talk about sexual violence, we're always referring to violence against women and children um, and girls. Um, but um, I know that at least in my country, South Sudan, uh, we have had several reports of sexual violent, um, or sexual, sexual violent crimes that have been committed against men as well. So are they part of the conversation in your organization or are they part of the conversation um, or the occurrences that um, you have observed in um, in Nigeria as well, because um, just you know, going over a few um, papers and, and documentaries that came across me, um, you, you can actually see that as much as the impact is greater on women, you know, um, these, you have the diseases, you have the children, um, and the stigma and all that. Um, with, when you hear the encounters that men describe themselves, um, it's very breaking. So I'll just like to hear your thoughts on sexual violent crimes um, against men in humanitarian settings. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. That's a brilliant question. Um, so yes, in our conversations, we recognize, and, and that's why I made reference to the RAP Act um, as the only law in Nigeria that recognizes that boys can be raped or men can be raped. 
you know, prior to now, the conversation has centered more on women and girls, because of course, that's what data shows us and that's what reality you know, speaks to. Um, but we don't actually have data currently on the cases of violence against boys within humanitarian settings but we do have for women and girls, right? Um, nonetheless, um, services are also addressing men. Um, for instance, at our organization, we do not um, prioritize, you know, gender. Of, co of course, we recognize that women and girls are, are you know, the, the major target audience, but we also recognize that boys and men as well. Um, experience violence. And just to give you an instance, this has nothing to do with humanitarian settings. The first case we ever worked on at STAIR is that of two boys who were being raped by their neighbor who is a man. So that was the first case we ever worked on. And over time, we've had male survivors, those who identify with um, as, um, um, as either gay, bisexual, or you know queer, you know whatever it is they, they identify as, we support them, right? Um, so we do not we do not discriminate. Um, but on the national level, I agree with you that there should be you know greater conversations around men and boys who get raped within IDP camps, and that's you know a feedback I will take going forward. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that answer. We have a question in the chat. I'm going to read it. Um, so the first question is, how did you go about creating? a safe space to obtain this data? And what epidemiological method did you use to collect this data? Um, uh, Bianca, I don't know if you can maybe unmute and ask the question, because I'm not sure what data you're referring to. Hello? Okay. Um, oh, she said her mic doesn't work. But um, she's asking if how you went about to create a safe space for to obtain data and what epidemiological method you used to collect the data. Um, I think, I guess it's for your presentation. In the idea. Thank you for the question. Yeah, yeah, thank you for the question. So what we do is um, we, sort of go first and identify who are the um, leaders in the IDP camps, kind of speak to them. We introduce ourselves, introduce what we want to do, why it is important for us to do it, and we get their feedback. You know, if it's something they think is valuable, um, because we take them as, you know, uh, stakeholders in the work that we do. And so when they, you know, give us access, um, we go in there, have like a, we sit on the mat, or on whatever it is that, you know, we have at the IDP camp, we just we talk to them about sexual violence, what do they understand by it? Are this in cases? And then the conversations be begin to start. Um, and that's how we're able to create a safe space with them because we are women as well. And you know, we, we are survivors as well. And so we're able to come from a personal point of view that we are not here for data collection. We're actually here to understand their needs and how we can you know, continue to support them. And that's how they open to us and we speak and we provide, you know, um, if, it's, if it's either, you know, the, that they require pads or whatever it is that they need at the time, we're able to provide that to them immediately. Um, but to respond to your question about the data reference in my document, if, if you notice during my presentation, I did reference the sources um, where this data was collected from or the data were collected from rather. Um, so there are a couple of uh, 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 
quantitative research that have been done in this area by UNFPA, by individuals, by you know, ICRC, and those are the data I referenced in my presentation. I hope that answers your question. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, we have another question in the chat. So Solomon says, thank you for your wonderful presentation. Do you have a program which allows rape, rape victims to come in and talk and empty their burden to get some relief and healing psychologically because many victims will probably die in silence? And secondly, do you also have some contribution to female genital mutilation? Thank you for your question. So yes, we do have a mental health and psychosocial support unit um, that provides mental health services to survivors. Um, we have a platform where people can report to us directly or their relatives report to us and we step in. In states where we don't have physical presence, we're able to um, hire a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist um, who is trained and then provides the services um, to, to, to the person who needs the services. So yes, um, we have an open space policy for survivors to actually come talk to us. Um, sometimes they just want legal advice, not even mental health support, that's also fine. You know, whatever information it is that you need or service that you require, we are there to provide it. And in terms of female genital mutilation, um, we used to do work around that and in my personal capacity as a part of the Nala Femme uh, Collective, I do work on FGM. Um, but I haven't directly done work on FGM uh, within humanitarian um, settings. And that's like a great area, you know, um, to kind of flag uh, because I haven't seen much data in that regard for FGM, but I, I'm sure it happens. Um, but in terms of FGM in, 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 in general in Nigeria, we do have FGM practiced in the southern, um, um, southeastern, southwestern part of Nigeria. And, some parts of north, northeast as well and northwest um, but it's mostly known in southwest for states like Oshun state for instance um, or your states they have a high prevalence of fgm um, in um, southeast you have a lot of cases on the state as well they, they, they practice the different types type one type two um, and in northern nigeria as well we have cases of fgm um, but i do not have data today to share with you in that regard but something i can uh, maybe get across to you Okay, thank you. Thank you for that comment and that response. Um, but just following up on that, is FGM considered um is it is it um being is it currently outlawed in Nigeria or is it just a cultural practice that goes on in Nigeria? Would you say would you classify it as um I would say maybe um an abuse or against women? Is it, is, it, is it being classified as such in Nigeria? Yes, it is actually categorized under sexual and gender-based violence. Um, and so it is you know, regarded as a human rights violation and the VAP Act actually covers FGM as well. Um, there are states that have you know, policies and um, guidelines on FGM prevention and response, especially when it comes to circumcisers and um, um, traditional birth attendants who sort of practice, you know, FGM. They're like perfect policies that address them. Um, but it's not, it's not just a cultural issue in Nigeria. It's actually seen as a human rights violation and part of SGBV and the Violence Against Persons Prohibition Act um, actually speaks to these and frowns against it. 
Okay, thank you so much for that. I'd like to ask if anybody else has any questions or comments or like to say anything at this point. Okay. I don't think we have any more questions. So I'm going to say, but thank you so much, Mr. Shelby, for this presentation. It was such an eye-opening and a wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. So I'm going to hand over to Ifoma to wrap up this session. Love, thank you once again. Um, this was a very great session um, and quite informative and really a good way to think about what is currently happening now in Nigeria. Um, I just wanted to comment on the, the information that you brought regarding to the sit at home that um, that's happening in the Southeast. And so um, I never actually equated sexual violence as being a part of what is happening for people who violate that. So it's quite also interesting to see that you touch on that in your talk. So um, um, I am curious before we formally close um, what those, um, what intervention that your, that STIR is doing to help um, women and girls in that context um, in the Southeast um what other actions are just being done to help um support or provide resources um that would be of use um i mean it as you know it is um something that is kind of creeping up in that region of nigeria so i would like if you can actually just share a little bit more um on any work that you guys are doing there out of interest before we formally close Okay, thank you. Um, just to mention, our services are not targeted towards a particular set of people. Uh, it's targeted towards survivors in general, whether um, they were raped you know, by close relatives or um, in an ITP camp or whatever the context is, we provide services to all persons. Um, so we do not have a special program carved out for women in, in that setting. Um, we extend our services, you know, to everyone who reaches out to us. And in cases where we're unable to do that, we have referral pathways where we refer to um, either the ministries uh, in, those, in those states or we refer to other civil society organizations and service providers who can step into the case and provide services because we do not work alone. Um, so I wouldn't want to say that we have a special program for them because our services, although it takes into cognizance the different peculiarities of the survivors we work with, um, but we do not have a special program for them. Our services are open to everyone and we provide it to them as well. Okay, awesome. That's good to know. Um, awesome. So I really do appreciate this. I think um, if people do have any additional questions, I'm sure they'd love to reach out to you. Um, but thank you for a really uh, powerful, impactful um, talk and really sharing more about what STIR is doing in Nigeria and what needs to be done um, to address these issues that you've raised. So with that, um, we have about a 10 minute break before we begin our next section. Um, at 10 a.m.
Sure. I just also want to point out that this session will be recorded and posted on our podcast, APHN podcast, for review later. So we'll send out emails when we do that.